1: only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello everyone and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret and this is Amy and today we're talking to Dr. Katherine Perlman. She is the founder of the Family Coach and a licensed clinical social worker who has been working with children and families for more than 25 years. Catherine is regularly called upon to provide expert opinion for newspaper and magazine articles, speaking engagements, radio, and TV. She lives in California with her husband and two kids, and her new book is First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the big
0: question, which everyone has, and I have my own fairly faulty opinion on. What? is the right age for a kid to get their first phone?
2: Magic question. So I used to think the best age was to wait as long as possible. So that would be 13, 14. I have really changed my mind on this. I think that's actually way too late. First of all, by 13, 14, most kids have already had access. Either they have an iPad Uh, that's not fully clamped down, or their friends have smartphones. So then you're really not even in control of anything. They can do whatever they want, and they have no training either. So I actually think 11 or 12 is a great age, I would say, earlier, depending on the need. So some kids have an actual need. Maybe they're walking home from school. They might have divorced parents. They might have a medical condition that requires them to have a smartphone. So there are some reasons to get a child a phone earlier. But the thing that's good about the 10, 11, 12 age, your kids are still connected to you. They're still happy to hear from you. They're happy for you to be in their phone to educate them. By the time they're 14, you're out and their friends are in. So even if you're talking, they're not listening and they don't want you in their phone. They don't want you in their room. So you've kind of missed the boat a little bit.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, it's a good point.
0: I started with the idea of as late as possible. And then it's just the pickups. We don't have busing in my town. So then the pickups became like, have you seen my kid? Have you seen my kid? And it just so my first kid, seventh grade or maybe halfway through sixth grade. And then I got my nine year old a phone at a certain point because it just became such an issue of the convenience and the safety of the phone outweighed. And then I was like, I'm going to get the watch where you can just track them and text. It just all fell apart. My system of like, we're going to wait as long as possible. I could not believe how fast it crumbled. Is that something that you see in researching the book? Like people, the line moves
2: backwards for people? Oh, 100%. Exactly what happened to you is what happens to most people. The average age for getting a phone these days is between 8 and 11. And I think for some families, you know, the really simple phones are great. But I think people progress pretty quickly. And again, kids already have access to iPads, which can do almost everything anyway. So I kind of like the idea of, you know, do it at 9 if that makes sense for you, but start the home training then too.
1: Yeah. And that's an important part. My method was to go with what my friend Anne, this was her idea, actually, she called it the StarTech 3000, that your kid's first phone should be a StarTech 3000. In other words, like a flip phone that just stinks and can play like cadiddle caduncle or something and text, but that's all, that they don't have access to the internet in their pockets. But this is the kid that we were discussing is now 19. Has that even changed over the last decade that you believe kids should just get the, all the bells and whistles when they get the first phone?
2: You know, they don't need all the bells and whistles, but I really don't think a flip phone is the right way to go. Because the truth is, in a lot of communities, kids are communicating and socializing through their phones, through texting, through gaming apps, through Roblox, which a lot of little kids are playing, but they're doing it with their friends. And so if your kid doesn't have access to that, and especially if they are socially awkward or have any kind of social issues, they're really set behind. So depending on your community and That whole, all the other kids are doing it may actually apply in this case. Again, the younger the kid, the more supervision they may need. But I think that that's a reasonable explanation for why a kid might just, you know, you might decide to get a phone for a younger kid.
0: Now, this your book, First Phone, is written for kids. It's a kid-facing book. What made you decide, when I first picked up the book, most of the books we read are like, okay, adult, here is your role and how you're going to do this. What made you make this book kid-facing?
2: So there are books for parents about managing your kids' technology. The problem is then it leaves the parent to the implementation, which is the hard part. The Reading the book is the easy part. So I wanted something that, you know, all parents could use as a way of communicating all the important topics to their kids. There was nothing for kids. There was a book just for girls that was a little bit outdated. I wanted something for all kids that was very inclusive and that was almost like a gift for parents. It was was like you don't have to implement. You have to give in the book. I hope the parents read it too. And then it's just a jumping off point for starting with conversations that will continue. But I wanted something that was for kids because, again, parents are not with their kids when they're encountering these problems. The Kids are on their own. So they have to learn to make good choices. And if they could read it in their own language and hear from other kids that sound like them, maybe it will you know, sink in more. What's one of the
1: problems that you talk about in the book that you think kids kind of aren't expecting when they get that first phone for their 10th birthday?
2: I don't think they think about etiquette at all. You know, parents do a really good job of teaching their kids, please and thank you, and manners in person. But kids don't do well without social cues. You know, they're still learning in their social environment. And without social cues of seeing if somebody's laughing or happy or sad or upset, they are clueless. I don't know if you've experienced this with your kids, but you know, even with my own daughter, I would, when she started Instagram, I was like, okay, you can't say that. That's going to be misread or that's mean. But she didn't mean it mean I know her. She did not mean it mean. But she had no clue about how to communicate in a digital world in a way that might be you know, kind and not misread, even not intentionally. And then also, kids don't know when to put their phone down. They just are looking at the adults around them. And we have our phones out all the time. And they don't know that when grandma's there, you put it down. Or they don't know when a friend's on a play date. Maybe they don't their phone out. You know, they don't know these things. So I think that's why I started with that. And I think that's, you know, kids have no clue. What do you think from
0: the other point of view that parents, what are their central fears about their kids having a phone? I mean, obviously I was like as late as possible. We don't want phones in our lives. I know what my fears were, but what do you hear from parents about their fears and are they accurate? Is that what we should be worrying about?
2: I think most parents are afraid of scamming and predators, and they're really afraid of social media. I mean, I think that there's a lot of good research that's being released and good news reporting about some of the dangers of social media for young kids in terms of how it affects their self-esteem. Anxiety and depression is on the rise for kids. And so I think that a lot of families are very, very concerned about how that's going to affect their kids. And they feel somewhat powerless. They feel like I don't even know how to tackle this gigantic thing. And so I think from a parental perspective, that's really the concern. Yeah,
0: I think that's right. And I, but what I've found now, my oldest is 13, and then I have a 10 year old who's been on a phone, obviously, for at least a year now. <laughs> I found that like, that's what I was worried about is the the sort of predator stuff or the social media stuff. My kids don't have social media accounts. But what I find really fascinating that I was not expecting is like the group texting dynamic that there's a text chain at any point going on that's like almost every kid in the grade. And I don't know, I obviously didn't have that as a kid. But the fact that there's this kind of what do you call it? Recess playground going on at all times on the phone. That seems to me to be a complete free for all. I did not see that coming at all.
2: Yeah, I actually agree with that. That was something uh, researching the book that I hadn't thought of at all that really struck me is how kids don't have a social break from their friends ever. Like we used to go home from school and for better or worse, we could kind of disconnect from our social world We could, you know, just kind of focus on ourselves, our hobbies, our interests, watch television. Like there was just downtime. Nowadays, kids, even younger kids are constantly connected. They're constantly on. That is so hard. And also, not everyone is of the maturity level in those giant group chats to know how to deal with people. And it can very easily go in a very wrong direction. I hear my son constantly He's 15. He's moderating his friend group all the time. This one said something that hurt this one's feelings. These are boys. This one destroyed somebody's thing in Minecraft. And that was very upsetting. And this is all through texting and all through chatting online, not in person. So I think that these big chats are difficult for kids because they don't know how to get out of them. They feel if they're not involved in it, that they're missing out somehow socially, and it can go very wrong very quickly.
1: We're talking to Katherine Perlman. Her new book is First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette. And we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Known unknowns. We don't know what our kids are doing online and and that's going to be scary. And what if there are predators, right? Those are the known unknowns when we give our kids their phones. What are some of the unknown unknowns, the things that are risky to kids, either to their mental health or to their safety that we're not even understanding when we give them a first phone? I feel like in the first section, we were sort of like, well, we worry about this and then we give them a phone. But that doesn't mean these fears were all unfounded or were they?
2: No, I mean, I think obviously predators and scammers is very real. It's real for adults as as well as for kids. But you know, we don't think as parents about Google at all. We think Google is this wonderful resource, let our kids add it. Even YouTube, a lot of kids have been using YouTube long before they get social media, but that is a social media. There are likes and shares uh, and comments. And we think of it as just something that's educational, you know, look it up, Google it. But there is a lot internet that is not appropriate for our kids that they can get onto super quickly by googling something very innocuous. And oops, they've seen something that they shouldn't, or they've seen something disturbing, like it may not be pornography, but it could be just something violent or something upsetting that they didn't know about. It could be even like something like 9-11, you know, it just things that our kids might not be ready for or didn't know. And we are not with them. And they don't necessarily know to say, hey, I saw something that's Upsetting me. You know, they just might be up in the middle of the night saying they had a bad dream and you have no idea what it was about. So I think that's one of the unknowns that we don't really think about. And the other thing about Google that I know parents aren't really thinking about is the misinformation that's on there. And how does a young kid in fourth or fifth or sixth grade determine, okay, this is a fact, this is opinion, this is made up misinformation and propaganda? You know, how do they dis- distinguish between those things? That's a learned skill and we have to help them with that. And we've
0: had guests on. We had Dr. Ibram Kendi on. He was talking about how people are targeting kids. It's not just like, oops, I might have seen something. I had my kids very young. I can't remember what they were doing. Minecraft something. And it was about like blowing things up. And they were like, oh, let's Google like blowing people up. They said something like that. And I was standing across the room and I remember leaping across the room like, do not go Google blowing people up. Like you will immediately be seeing horrific images. They were thinking about it in a very specific cartoonish context and Google was going to take them somewhere very different than that. That's one fear. But one thing I didn't really realize before talking to some experts about this is that there really are people on the internet trying to recruit kids into mindsets, into either white supremacy, into all sorts of mindsets political
1: mindsets. Johnny Depp is awesome and Amber Heard is terrible.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, that's the example I was using with him, right? That my kid came in there. Oh, Amber Heard is the worst and poor Johnny Depp. And I thought, where are you even hearing this information? And you're not ready to understand the complexities of that relationship at 11. And so I think it's very interesting and something to think about. How do you protect kids from not just seeing scary imagery, but kind of getting sucked into idea spaces that they're not ready for, but they think they're ready for because they're 13 and they're going to come and be like, mom, you don't understand. I heard, you know,
1: extreme one, two, three, who told me that Johnny Depp is a hero, you know? Exactly. Right. You're wrong that they're targeting me because actually the information is 100% correct. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, it's very upsetting. And at least in that case, your kid mentioned it to you. But the part that worries me is our kids are getting information. You know, it used to be like we would think, should I tell my kid there was a school shooting? How should I tell my kid? We had time to think about it. Now, by the time the kid's coming home from school, they already know. And they're bombarded with information all the time about pop culture, about what's going on in the news around the world. And so one of the things I like to tell parents to do is you have to be proactive. If you heard it on the radio or you heard it on the news, hey, bring it up during dinner. I heard this really interesting thing. And talk about it with your kids, even on a basic level at a young age. That's about relationships. What's violence in a relationship? How can we know what's the truth in a relationship? We can't. We weren't there. So there's so many conversations. It's like a wealth of opportunity with our kids. And so we shouldn't just wait until they come to us. Whenever there's something on the news, boom, I'm in it with my kids. Just to say, oh, what are your thoughts? Ask open-ended questions. You can find out a little bit more where they're coming from, what they heard, and then instead of coming in like hot with that, that is wrong, think about it a little bit differently and kind of make it a discussion instead of a lecture. How do you
1: separate the right age to get Instagram and TikTok, things like that? I think we sometimes kind of fold those in, like get a phone and have at it, right? Do you separate out that? What is the right age for a phone versus what is the right age to get some of the things you can do with your phone?
2: So obviously, all the social media companies recommend 13. And I would agree. However, kids are on it earlier. So they're on it, we have to educate them about it. I recommend parents pick one type of social media when they get the phone to download on the phone and to do it with their kids. So for us, at the time, it was Instagram, it may be something else for you you know, my son is on discord. He doesn't care about Instagram for him. It's discord. So I had to learn about what discord is and what he's doing on it and explain that to him. So, but do it with your kids. That is the thing. It's like, it's a learning opportunity for you for what are they seeing? What's in the for you recommendations that is so important for parents to see and be able to discuss. And then to see what is your kid posting? What is your kid commenting? What are your kids friends commenting? And again, not in a punitive way, but in a, let's learn about this together. And then you can expand. But the truth is, Social media has, is also increasingly available uh, just through the internet. Your kid doesn't necessarily even need it on an app anymore. And if their friend has an account and they don't have an account, again, you're not having that opportunity to educate them. So I'm moving towards give them a social media, but give them the education at the same time. And I think there are things like what is an influencer and how is that the same as a commercial on television is really important. And our kids don't see that. And to really explain to them that social media is not real life. Like we say that, but we have to show them. Like even when I am posting, I can show my kids. Look, I took 17 pictures. I took 17 pictures and then I use a filter on it and then I posted it cropped. You know, and why I did that is because I look a little bit better. But when you're in puberty and you're not feeling so great about your changing body and you see all these perfect things on social media. And then you look in the mirror, it's pretty hard to feel good about yourself and your life, you know, so but we have to talk about these things, then they can see behind the curtain. And then hopefully those effects aren't as strong.
0: One thing I want to drill down on that I'm dealing with right now in my house that you said is, you don't need a social media account to be exposed to a tremendous amount of social media. So I don't want my kids on TikTok. But my kids are on YouTube, and YouTube now has a YouTube shorts that's just People's TikTok, it's the same thing as scrolling through a TikTok timeline. That's where they're seeing a lot of this like Amber Heard, Johnny Depp stuff. That's where they're seeing a lot of the like takes on the news. That's where a lot of our panic resulted from Russia is about to bomb us any day now. And like a lot of the information that I thought I had... Sort of put up barricades to certain spaces. It's like the water. It's like putting up a gate in front of a river. Like it just comes right through. And that's something that's been, I think it's evolving very quickly because I don't think that's it. That was an issue with my kids even a year ago. But right now, especially it's summer downtime, whatever. I find they're watching a ton of like passive short form content that this just like click, 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 clicking by. And it's very hard. When you talk about, you know, talk about what's in the news, yes, but it's such a barrage of information that it seems hard to be like, what did you see on TikTok today? Of the (laughs) 7000 videos you watched, right? It's just sitting by a rushing river and like, okay, which 40 boats did you see come by and how can I possibly keep up with that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that we can keep up is impossible. That makes me feel better. Yeah. And the other thing I tell parents is that, you know, these devices are meant to attract our attention. You know, they are, you know, the people who are behind the apps and the social media and our phones, they're working incredibly hard to make us stare for longer and longer periods of time. And so it is not within our control. We cannot control it on our own. It's really helpful to you know, find ways to help our kids take a break. Like you mean to go look something up and the next thing you know, it's 45 minutes later, this happens to all of us. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've just scrolled through like 20 auditions on America's Got Talent when I went to like quickly look up, you know, someone's like Facebook (laughs) handle, you know, we get sucked in. So, you know, to help kids minimize that passive amount of information, you know, for me, even personally, I put on, I can only have an hour of social media a day. My phone shuts off after that. And that is, I'm an adult, you know, for kids, it's even harder. So we have no idea what they're watching. We can't control it. And the other thing is the social media companies are now trying to make just like the other social media companies. So it used to be like, it was only Snapchat that disappeared, but now you can text within Instagram and that disappears. You know, you could only do videos on this one and now you could do videos on all of them. They could only be short videos. Now they could be longer videos. Like they're literally all just like, oh, that's an advantage of that social media I'll do it. So I thought you know, okay, Instagram would be perfect because it's just pictures and it's really simple. again, this was only five years ago and now right it's, it's changed like it fast. Does. yeah, it's exactly the same. So I think knowing we can't control it, doing our best and then sort of putting on outside limitations to kind of get us off because one of the things I did learn is that you know there is some better or worse screen time. it's not all the same. But at the end of the day, the number of hours a kid is on the screen starts to take its toll no matter what they're doing, even if it's just education. And we know it isn't. So at some point, we have to say, we need help managing the screens. I don't want to constantly be saying, get off your screen. I need outside help to say like, oh, it's four o'clock. We're turning it off for an hour. That's the family rule. Or the pop-up comes, blocks it, or whatever it is that helps us through that because it's impossible.
0: We're talking to Catherine Perlman, the author of First Phone. And we'll be right back.
3: on the air around relatable struggles. So early in the
0: book, you describe to kids there are uses for a smartphone. I thought this was a really interesting thought. I do find myself saying... You can be on screens, but you can't be scrolling YouTube videos. You can't just be scrolling videos. You can text with your friends. You can use a drawing app. Breaking down the uses of the phone for kids, I think, is a good entry point into having some say over how they're using their phone. Talk a little bit about the way you break down the uses of the phone, because I found that helpful in talking to my kids about how they're using them.
2: You know, I don't think it's helpful to come in and say, you know, phones are bad. They're all bad. Everything is bad. Here it is. Good luck. I'm going to try and help you, but it's all bad. The phone can do an incredible amount of good stuff, like tons of good stuff, tons of like life-saving stuff that keeps us connected with family far away. You know, during the pandemic, I had a baby niece born. I have not seen her. I watch her sleep on my app on the phone, and I feel like I'm visiting with her it is amazing. So there are so many good things that happen. And I think kids can hear us more when we say, look, there are wonderful things this phone can do. Let's try some of them besides YouTube. How about a cool creative app that I will pay for and you can download and you will enjoy because I know you love to draw or whatever it is. So I think that there are opportunities for us to explore the other options that phones can do besides just, you know, social media.
1: It makes so much sense to me having this conversation that this book is actually for kids because we can't, as we've discussed, we can't really stop them. We can't know every TikTok video they're watching. We can't stop what they're doing at school in their rooms on the school bus. So tell us a little bit about how you talk to kids about how do you know how to set your own boundaries around your phone usage and why would they want to?
2: So I wrote the book as a professional, as an expert myself, but... I didn't want it to be just another parent talking to kids about the dangers of cell phones. So I created these five characters that I hoped kids would find themselves in. They're very diverse, just in a lot of different ways. And I I was hoping kids would say, oh, yeah, that's just like my family. Or yeah, that's I kind of look a little like that or whatever. So that then these kids could talk directly to kids about the things that they're experiencing. A lot of that came from kids I know, my own kids, my nephews, about what their experiences were. Like my kid jumped in a pool twice, two times with his phone in his pocket. So that got in the book. But again, it wasn't me lecturing saying, you know, take your phone out of your pocket before you jump in a pool. It was a kid to kid talking. And again, so that it was like kind of the right tone for a kid to hear the comments rather than feeling like, oh, it's another lecture. I don't want to read this.
0: Another thing we haven't totally uh, discussed is the fact that it's a pretty expensive piece of technology that is easy to lose and pretty easy to break. You know, I have a kid who's had one phone the entire time, and I have a kid who's four phones in. It's not like something where you say, OK, you don't have an iPad now because you lost it. I need you to have a phone, not so much you need to have a phone. How do you talk to kids about like being responsible with their phones?
2: So it's a little bit tricky. I think we have to talk to them, but we also have to create an environment that helps them not break their phone. So my kids, it was mandatory that they had like the Mac daddy of phone cases that could be dropped from, you know, an airplane and still survive and it wasn't cute. And I said, that's just too bad. I'm not replacing this broken screen. So they had that requirement. We had a place where we charged it. That is very helpful so that it was kind of a system. And I talk in the book about you know, having kids have a place where it goes in your bag and a system that happens when you come in from school and where you put your things. We have to help kids learn how to take care of their things. For some kids, obviously it comes naturally. But for many kids, this is not something that comes naturally. They are constantly missing something losing something, those kids need a system to help not lose their phone. And if your kid loses a phone often, then you put in a number, like a literal, like email or something on the back of their phone and saying, if lost, please like call or email. But you know, that only helps so far. We
0: collect phones from the family members, like they're outdated phones, because sometimes they take them back, sometimes they don't. So what happens is when you lose a phone in our family, you get downgraded, a genera- like you get Nana's old phone. Shame phone. That's right. So you're on the shame <laughs> phone, like no one wants to be on Nana's old phone. They only want the newest phone. So like my poor kid who loses everything is like on a four old generation phone. But that's what happens.
1: <laughs> that's funny. Catherine, tell us about digital consent and why that's something that our kids need to understand. So
2: we talk to kids nowadays about sexual consent, and that is really important about boundaries in terms of touching. And I think we need to start talking more about what digital consent is. So that is asking for permission before I send any picture out into the Internet of you or give any information about you online. Boxing is, you know, if you share information and that usually has a negative undertone, but kids share stuff all the time or post pictures of their friends and their friends. Like, I don't like how I look in that picture. Can you take it down? And so we need to be teaching kids this. And the best way to teach them is that we ask before we post, is it okay if I post this picture of you? And parents are very hesitant to do this because often as kids get older, they say, no, you may not post that. But imagine what it's like for a kid if you post it, and they say, I don't really like that picture, or they're embarrassed, their friends are making fun of them, which they are if you have a public account, their friends are looking through your account. You know, the kid feels very out of control. They're not going to then ask their friend, is it okay with you if I post this picture? They're gonna be like, well, no, I guess it's a free for all on the internet, and we do what we want. You know, modeling that digital consent is difficult, but it's really, really important so that we have respect for each other about what we share about our friends and family.
0: And you feel strongly and express in the book that kids should not have their phones at night. They should not sleep with their phones in the room. Tell us the reasoning behind it and your theory on phones at night.
2: Somewhere between 68% to 80% of kids sleep with their phones in their rooms and about 30% sleep with them on their pillows. And why this was so upsetting to me is that we know that our kids are not getting enough sleep and we've known through... Decades of research that when kids don't get enough sleep, especially teenagers, they have greater anxiety, greater depression, more difficulty focusing in school, difficulty memory, all these social skills, coping skills, really a lot of negative effects from not getting enough sleep, whether or not it's the phone or not. And if you have a phone in your room and it's dinging and there are notifications and your parents aren't around, you know, your kids are going to be on it all night long. And even if your kid is like, absolutely not, I'm not on it, it's just an alarm clock, that may be for some period of time, but there's something exciting happening at school, everybody's texting, and the next thing you know, it becomes the norm, and it's on the pillow, and they're up all night long. We have to do more to help our kids disconnect from their social lives, get better sleep, take better care of their mental health. And you know, it's not always easy to do that, but taking the phone out of the room, that is such an easy solution. Have them have a break 10 o'clock you know, depending on the age of your kid, it could be eight o'clock. They will whine and complain till the cows come home if they think there's a chance that that rule will be overturned. But if there is a non-negotiable, they move on really quickly. And this was something we did in our house and my daughter ended up loving it. She would tell her friends by 9.30, like, don't tell me anything important because I've put my phone down a half hour and I don't want to be stressed out about it. And that's just been the norm for all of us. So I feel strongly if parents get nothing else from this book, take the cell phones out of your uh, kid's room at night. Absolutely nothing good is happening in the middle of the night with our kids, like nothing, you know, so it might be innocuous or it could be sexting. So don't do it.
0: We have a lot of parents who have younger kids who are just thinking about this for the future. One rule we established right away is no phones in your rooms. Like phones are used in our house in public spaces. So it keeps a sort of umbrella over the phones in general of we're. Involved with your phones. I don't really go through their messages and stuff, but we don't allow our kids to use their phones at all behind closed doors. Now, my oldest is 13. That's going to change soon, my guess is. But we stretched a lot longer by saying phones don't go upstairs in our house. You're not allowed a phone upstairs. And it A keeps them out of the bedrooms. It keeps them out of that space at night, but it's a nice early role with younger kids because it also gives them the feeling of like phones involve your parents in some fundamental way. They're not private. They don't happen in a private space.
2: Yeah. There is a fear of texting something inappropriate with your mother in the next room. You know, it's just not the same as having privacy. And the same thing with cyberbullying. Why is it so easy? We're alone in a room in front of a computer and it's so easy to say a mean text or a mean tweet. But when somebody's with you in your office, you know, sitting next to you, you might be less likely to do it. So I think that's a great rule. And one thing I would encourage parents, if you've made a mistake and your kid is already sleeping with their phone, that is okay. You can change a rule at any time in your house. There will be a lot of whining, complaining for a couple of days. But again, if it's non-negotiable, they will move on. So don't feel like, oops, I are, there's 80% of us that already made that mistake. That's okay. You can change that.
1: I want to end on a hopeful note because so much about phones feels overwhelming and scary. So give us, Catherine, a takeaway. The kids who get this book or are given this book by their parents, what do you hope they take away that's positive about phones and their relationship with them?
2: I think kids like it when we give them control over their lives to make decisions for themselves. Like, you know, just when I remember I let my 11 year old walk to her piano lesson, like five doors down, she skipped the whole way. She was super excited. And I think kids want this technology. And I think they enjoy feeling in control of how to manage it. It opens up the discussion. I talk a lot about mistakes in the book. That's okay. That is part of life. We're not going to, it's not going to ruin everything, but we can talk about our mistakes. We can even laugh about some of our mistakes and we can continue on. So I think giving kids the information actually makes them feel better instead of worse.
0: It sounds so right to me. We've been talking to Dr. Catherine Perlman, the author of First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety and Etiquette. Catherine, tell us where we can find you and where parents can find the book for their kids.
2: My website is thefamilycoach.com and I am at The Family Coach on Twitter and Facebook and you can find the book wherever books are sold. Awesome. We'll put links to all of that in the
1: show notes. Catherine, thanks for talking to us today.
2: Thank you guys so much. That was fun. Thank you.
1: Margaret, it's an exciting news day.